Well, I welcome you. Uh, our mission as a church uh, is uh, to help more people more often say yes to God. And my, I'm Darren Rondi. I'm senior pastor here, and I, I'm so glad that you're here to go on this journey with us. We've been in the study of the book of Ephesians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of believers who came out of a very pagan background and found the Lord. And what they found is that in Christ, they had a new identity, that God had chosen them from before time began, that God loved them and sent his son to die for them, that God had placed them into his family and called them his very own children, that God had put his Holy Spirit in them, that spiritually he'd raised them from the dead and had, had formed them as his own works of art, his workmanship to do good works. And so because they were different, the Apostle Paul goes into the fourth chapter, which we've looked at the last couple of weeks, saying, put off the things that were part of your old life that weren't Christ-like and put on new things. And we looked at things like put off falsehood and put on truth, put, put off seething anger and put on managed anger and controlled and, and properly directed and, and put off stealing and be a generous giver, put off discouraging conversation and critical conversation and be encouraging with your words and put off things like bitterness and replace it with kindness and forgiveness. And uh, it's just fitting that when you're in a, in a new place, you dress differently. So if you're a, school, a child that goes to a, a new school, say it's a charter school that wears uniforms, you have a uniform that you wear. Or if you go to a new job that requires a certain outfit, you wear that because of your new identity. If you join a sports team as an athlete, you, you don the, the uniform of that team. That's who you are. You, you dress different. And Paul uses that analogy to say, as Christians, we put on a new wardrobe that matches the likeness of Christ. And so uh, we're going to go into the fifth chapter today, look at a big chunk of scripture. But Paul uses the word several different times in this passage, the word walk. Because the Christian life can be summarized as a walk. I love that, that uh, term because one of the very first stories I learned in the Bible was a story of Enoch. Enoch was the father of Methuselah. And you can read about it in the book of Genesis. But it says that after Methuselah was born, Enoch walked with God 300 years and was no more because God took him. In other words, he didn't die. God just like said, okay, it's time to go home. Come on up, Enoch. You're going to come up with me. I've enjoyed walking with you for 300 years. Let's continue up here on another level. Our, our Christian life is compared to a walk, and I love that because when you want to be with someone, spend time with someone, you, you often go for a walk. Typically, we don't say, hey, I'd like to get to know you. What, you want to go for a run? We don't because if you're like me, I can't, I can't run and breathe and talk at the same time. It's one or the other. Okay, if we're going to run, I'm not going to talk. I have a hard enough time talking on the incline, let alone running and talking. And so, uh, but I can talk when we're walking. In fact, walking often creates a very great environment for talking. Some of the best conversations you'll have with your kids, your spouse, or friend is when you've taken a walk. And so, uh, we're walking with God, just like Enoch did. And then, in, in another sense, the walk helps us see that the Christian life is a journey, it's a step at a time. It's, it's a steady movement in the same direction. It tells us that there's a pace of moving kind of gradually in this Godward direction. See, sometimes people become Christians and they're all on fire and they race after things. They get involved in a lot of things. They go to Bible studies, they serve, and then they burn out. They get tired. So it's just too much, too fast. And God's, God sometimes says, just, just slow down, pace yourself, walk. Remember the tortoise and the hare? Hair started fast, but got distracted and lost the race because the tortoise just plodded along steadily. And, and in many ways, the Christian life is like that. We are just steadily moving in a Godward direction, step by step by step. We don't experience the, the dramatic life change overnight. 
there's a, there's a gradual change that we experience over the course of time, and it's going to take the rest of your life on earth uh, to experience as much as God wants in your life on this side of heaven. And so because we believe in him, it, it, re, it naturally results in changes in our life. If we're walking with God, it will result in life change. We believe in him. We establish a relationship with him because we believe. And when you believe, it, it changes how you behave. When you believe, it changes how you behave. It's not the other way around. We don't behave and then, and, and then earn a relationship with God because of our behavior. We believe that God loved us when we weren't behaving well. And so we establish this relationship with him. And once we're in the relationship, God like takes our hand and says, I'm going to show you a different way to live. I'm going to lead you down a different path to get away from some of the things that were destroying your life. And so we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5 and see the direction or the, the way in which we are to walk as believers. So if you have a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul starts off. He says, be imitators I'm going to do this? Okay, I'll take this one. Thanks, Keola. He says, be imitators, as beloved, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love by imitating God. If we are children of God, and he says, you are not just children, you are beloved children. Now, think about that. Paul starts off, and he's going to get into some really tough things along the journey here. But Paul is saying that you need to know that God loves you, and he loves you dearly. He, he doesn't love you because you're improving your behavior. He, he loved you when you weren't behaving well. God so loved the world that he sent his son. It had nothing to do with how we were responding to God. He loved us when we were still his enemies. He says, now that you are his followers, don't forget, you are dearly loved. He doesn't love you any less. He's not mad at you. He's not disappointed in you. He's not whipping you into shape because he's upset with you. He's saying, I want to lead you down a different path. And this different path will, will cause you to look more and more like me. I want you to imitate who I am. That's pretty typical of children. Children imitate their parents. And so God wants us to imitate him. God is love, and and no one loves better than God. And so we imitate him in the sense of loving God and loving others as he loves. Now, when Pastor Sam preaches, I get a little jealous because he has four kids, which provides a lot of sermon material. (laughs) My kids are in their 30s. They don't allow me to say too much about their lives, but I'm so grateful that we have two grandkids who live in our community because they provide great sermon material. So I have a little grandson that you've heard of before. His name is Aiden. He's four years old. The other day, we were getting him ready for school. He was staying at our house. He had a performance at school. And so we all got showered up and got cleaned up. And then I shaved. And he looked at me and says, uh, I, I want to shave too. <laughs> so I put a little gel in his hand. And he mushed it together with both hands, put it on both cheeks. And then I got out a little stick razor. And I, put, and I removed the shaving cream from his face. And I, I find that... Whenever I do something, he wants to imitate it. So, so if I'm eating eggs and I'm putting hot sauce on my eggs, he'll say, I want hot sauce too. And you know what? I said, you're not going to like it. And I put hot sauce on his eggs. He loves it. He loves hot sauce. I put avocado on my eggs. He likes avocado on his eggs. My wife does the laundry. He wants to help with the laundry. 
We, we go out to, uh, we go out to the, the barn to feed the horse. We have a horse. And so we grab a big pitch uh, fork full of hay, throw it in this big bin for the horse. He goes in, grabs a handful of hay, goes over, and gives it to the horse. Uh, if I go out digging in the rocks, he wants the shovel so he can dig in the rocks right next to me. I mean, he's a, he's a good little helper. We give him allowance because he works long beside us. By the way, if you want to hire him out, I'm his manager. He goes, it's $10 an hour. But you know, it's, it's flattering when, it, when, it, when a child wants to do what you're doing. And it's been said by a, a gentleman named Charles Caleb Colton, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. To imitate someone is to say, I like what you're doing. Years before that, over 100 years before that, in a, in a biography of the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, it was said, according to his words, you should consider that imitation is the most acceptable part of worship and that the gods had much rather mankind should resemble than flatter them. Though he was pagan, though he believed in, in a multiple uh, number of gods, what, what he was saying I think is really true. The most flattering thing you could, you could say to your God is not words of praise, but to imitate your God, which is what Paul is saying here. You, the, the, the sincerest, the greatest form of worship is to love like God loves, is to let God be so evident in your life that people see God within you. Now, in our Christian lives, there are two huge events that, that go by big words, justification and sanctification. Justification is the moment of conversion. It's a moment of time when we surrender our lives to Christ and something dramatic happens in the spiritual realm. We are actually changed from not being children of God to being children of God. We're moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Something happens to where we become born again. It's a dramatic moment of time. But then there's this other thing called uh, sanctification, which is a lifelong process. It's the walking out of the faith. It's the day-by-day living. And, And I think sometimes we forget that those two parts work together. There is the forgiveness part of salvation, and there is the formation part. Forgiveness we all love. My sins are forgiven. But God says, I'm not done with you. I not only have forgiven you, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you to start to change you so that I can form you into the likeness of my son. Discipleship could be summarized very simply as this, to become more and more like Jesus. And that's what God desires for us, that we become formed. Because he tells us here very specifically, walk in love as Jesus loved us. You want to know what love looks like? Look at Jesus. How did Jesus love? Well, he tells us that too. He gave himself up for us as a sacrifice, as a fragrant offering. You want to know how much Jesus loved us? He loved us enough to die on a cross for us. Jesus didn't just give of himself. You know, you can love someone and give money, give time, and those are all examples of love. Give is a great synonym for love. But Jesus went beyond just giving of himself. He actually gave himself. That is a supreme form of love. Greater love is no one than this, that you lay down your life for someone else. Jesus did that for you. It says he did it for us. Think about that. Jesus, not just loved, like out there somewhere, loved. No, he loved us in a very tangible, beautiful way. And so God says, that's how I want you to love. That's the standard of love. Love like Jesus. Now, when you think of loving like Jesus, Jesus loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved other people as much as he loved himself. That, that is the epitome of love. Jesus loved God so much that he says, I'm willing to come to earth to fulfill your mission, to redeem mankind. I love you so much. Even when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and he said, Father, I, I, I know what's coming and I don't want to do that. If there be another way, 
But then he said, not my will, but yours. I'm going to be surrendered to your will. I love you so much, I will do your will. Not only that, but he says, I love those people who don't love you. I love people that don't love me. They will crucify me. They will spit on me. They will deny me, and yet I will still love them. He loves God, and he loves others. And so God says, imitate, imitate my son. Love love the father so much that you're willing to say, I'll do anything for you. I'll, I'll go anywhere. See, I think sometimes we forget that, that following Jesus and loving Jesus often involves leaving. Loving involves leaving. In Genesis, it says when a, a, a man uh, wants to marry a woman, it says he will leave his father and mother and hold faithful to his wife. There's a, uh, because he loves, he leaves. And Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. There's going to be some things you're going to have to leave behind to follow me. I know when I was a young Christian, I didn't understand that right away. I went through that conversion process, and that was very exciting, but it was the sanctification process, the growth process where it became very real. Hey, God's wanting to change me. And I started to experience conviction over the music I was listening to, over the jokes I was telling, over the the way I was um, looking at girls in high school, and the way I was interacting with my parents and my brothers and sisters. And I kept feeling this conviction like, man, I got things that that are messed up, and God's wanting to, to correct me. But he's doing it for my good because he loves me. And there was a time even in my life where I recognized, you know what? I may be single the rest of my life. You know, I, I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to have, have a mate to share life with. But God, if, if I have to leave that to follow you, I'm ready to do that now. I just want to ask you, if, if God said, in order to follow me, you must leave this thing, this, this, this aspect of your life, would you say, I would pick you over that, God? Because if there's anything that you would say, no, that thing, I have to hold on to that, even over God, that's your idol. That's not good. We've actually got to be willing to leave it all to follow him. See, God's trying to make us more and more like Christ, and it means that there are some things we'll leave behind as we take on this life of obedience to him. Jesus said, this is my commandment. Excuse me, if you love me, you obey my commandments. And in the very next chapter of of John, chapter 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So children, obey your father. Let Christ be formed in you. Become loving like he is. Well, then Paul goes on, and, and he And he starts to mess in very personal ways with their lives. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So he tells us to walk in another way. Walk in the light. And we'll walk in the light by seeking to please God. Another way to say walk in the light is to to walk in the truth. Over and over again, we see this picture in Scripture that this world is a dark place. 
and it gets increasingly darker. And the light penetrates the darkness. And the, and the light comes because it is the truth of God. And wherever the truth shines, there's light. And so God is all about light. And for us to walk in the light, walk in the truth, walk in agreement with the way that God, God sees the world. Now, Paul has been increasingly um, reflecting back on their past life to show where they're going and how it's different. He says in chapter 2, you, you used to follow the ways of the world and the prince of the air, following the desires of your flesh, being spiritually dead. And then in the fourth chapter, he says, you used to live in a way that, that made you hard of heart, callous toward God, and actually cut you off from God. That's the way you used to live. And here he says, here are some characteristics of the way you used to live, sexually immoral, foolish talk, crude, jo- crude joking, uh, covetousness. All these things are characteristic of your old way of life. This shouldn't be part of your new way of life. See, think about this when you think about sin. Let's say sin is like a poison. And I've been drinking poison my whole life. It's not been enough to kill me, but it's making me really sick. And so I go to the doctor, and the doctor points out, you know, this stuff's been killing you, and I think we can fix all the stuff that's damaged in your body. And you go, oh, thank you so much, doctor. Thank you for taking care of that, because I, I, I don't want to die from this. And the doctor says, I've got it all covered. You're, you're healed. You know, you can go now and, and live in freedom. And if, and if you go back home and pick up that bottle of poison again and start drinking it saying, hey, he's going to heal me again if I drink this stuff because I really he's, he's there to help me while I'm drinking the poison. It seemed foolish. It would seem insane. Like, why would you want to go back to the very thing that was killing you? And it's kind of what Paul is saying. Why do you want to keep living the way you used to live? That's what I saved you from. That was destroying your life. I'm, I'm trying to rescue your life, redeem your life. Follow me. Listen to me as I'm taking you down this new path. And as he um, describes these different issues, he starts off with sexual immorality. Now, if you're reading through the book of Acts, you came across that in the 15th chapter of Acts, when the Gentiles who are coming to faith were told uh, what they must do to kind of adapt to the life in the church. They said that just a few things. Stop worshiping idols. Stop, stop eating meat sacrificed to idols. And, and stop being sexually immoral. And in many ways, those were all tied together because a lot of sexual immorality was connected to their idolatry. He says, you're, 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 you're living a different way now. Now, sexual immorality, or immorality, some of your Bibles may say fornication, is a word that encompasses a lot of different things. Um, things that probably are, some of you would be offended if I would describe in church, so I'm not going to actually describe. But I'm going to say per, uh, uh, this word sexual immorality covers any sexual activity outside the parameters of a committed relationship between a man and a woman. That's biblically and historically what that's meant. And so anything outside of that was considered sexually immoral. The word there is pornea. Sound familiar? We have a popular word today that probably wasn't as big back then as it is now, pornography. Pornography is probably the biggest way in our society today that, that many of us have become sexually immoral. It is so accessible, so easy to reach. Some things that culture may not consider pornography, really are still pornography. I mean, I get uncomfortable even watching shows like Dancing with the Stars uh, or some of the, some of the dance shows or, or movies because says, we're really, uh, we're really st- uh, stretching the limits of morality and modesty in these situations. And so sexual morality is something that's wide open in our culture. There's a lot of things that are acceptable in our culture that, that God says, this isn't my best for you. And what we're finding is it's, causing increasing tension 
within the church. I mean, I would say years ago, the issue was divorce. Like, how do we deal with people divorcing in the, uh, in the church? You know, the Bible is very much against divorce, yet we've got a lot of people with divorced, and we know they're trying to follow the Lord, and so um, we, we've had to be very sensitive to that. We, we've, we've got a lot of people in, in churches where people are living together without being married, and, and people who are in relationships with people of the same sex. And so we've got people within our church communities that are coming, seeking the Lord and seeking God's direction, who are coming from a wide variety of backgrounds and cultural experiences. Last August, a group of church leaders met in Nashville, Tennessee, and they wrote up a statement saying, this is, the, this is what we're going to agree on as what is the church's response to the changes in culture. And basically, they reiterated the fact that this is, this is the parameters God has set in Scripture, and this is what we will continue to teach and preach. And when they did that, another group, um, led by a man from, from Denver, formed a, a contrary statement that was formed by a, a lot of Christians who believed differently. And it was called the liturgist statement. And they believe that the church has erred in many ways historically, that, that we had a wrong view of slavery and oppressed people, and that today the same thing's happening with people regarding gender and sexual orientation that were being very oppressive to them. And so they have a long statement, but at the core of their statement is this. We believe God is love and that anyone who loves is born of God and knows God, 1 John 4, 7. God is honored in any consenting and loving relationship between adults, and therefore all such relationships deserve honor and recognition. They really emphasize the, the love aspect, and basically it says there's, there's no boundary around a marriage relationship. So there's no mention of any kind of a covenant, no, no mention of monogamy for life or being, being coupled together for life. It, it doesn't limit it to one partner or, or multiple partners. So whether it's polygamy or polyamorous relationships, same-sex relationships, people living together without being married, it doesn't matter. As long as they love each other and consent to it and are adults, it's permissible. Well, that, that flies in the face of what the other group said, but we're finding in many, many churches a clash over, over these two perspectives. On the, on the one side are people saying, well, this is what the Bible says, and we're going to hold firm to the Bible, and there's a strong emphasis on truth. And then there's another group over here that that's, has a strong emphasis on love, saying we want to make sure people know they are loved and stop beating them over the head with the truth. And churches can respond in a couple different ways. One would be to whip out the Bible, and let's read all the scriptures that talk about various forms of sexual immorality and draw a firm line in the sand. Yeah, and that could drive a lot of people away from church just because of the attitude coupled with that. The other view would be, would be say, you know what, L- let's, let's emphasize the love aspect. And you know what, it's probably time the church kind of gets along with the movement of culture. See, culture's changed a lot even in the last 20 years. So let's get on board with the culture. We can do this. The, the Christianity can fit with, well within this system. So let's go along with culture and ride with this because this is going to be the best way that we can reach people. And, and I believe there's problems on both sides of those. And I want to actually share with you a different response that I think actually is better and goes right down the middle. But I'm not going to get that to that yet until we get to the later part of the sermon. Before we get to that, I want to look at something that Paul brings up here that I think is critical to understand. He says that these kinds of behavior are not appropriate for the saints. Saints is a bad translation because when we think of saints, it's been clouded by saints within the churches. So a saint is this elevated, holy, better than average person. But saint, we find in Ephesians, actually is a description of all Christians. 
In, in the very first chapter, Paul calls the whole Ephesian church saints or holy ones. It just means this. You've been set apart as belonging to God. And you will look different than the rest of the world. Because God is making you holy. He's making you separate. And, and you and I need to know that, that God is never intended to run side by side with culture. Remember, culture's dark. God, God's providing an alternative to culture, the light. So he's, he says, there's going to be a contrast. My people are going to be set apart. There are going to be things about my people that are different than the culture around us. Sometimes we forget that salvation is first for God, then for us. See, it's true, Jesus enters our life when we accept him. But the bigger issue is this, I enter his life. I'm entering the life of God. I'm entering this plan that God has for the world. It's not just about me getting this like pass so when I die I go to heaven. God says, I want you to be in my family because I want to love the whole world. And you know how I'm going to do it? Through you. See, when Jesus was here on earth, he was isolated to one place, one time, one body. But when he went to heaven, sent the spirit to all believers, he says, now I can, I can live through all of my children and reach the ends of the earth. What a beautiful plan God had. So we read in the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. He's bringing us to himself to make a people as his own possession who are, who, possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus is gathering around him people who want to please God, whose goal in life is to live for God and be a blessing to other people. That's what he's about. And if you became a Christian simply because you want a ticket to go to heaven, you missed the mark. It's not just about us. It's about him. It's about living for his glory, his praise, not just for our own benefit. We benefit, but it's first and foremost for God and what he's doing in our lives. And that's why he tells us, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If you want to walk in the light, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. How do you do that? Well, one is get in the Bible. Find out from scriptures what is pleasing to the Lord. What honors God? What, what, what choices in life do we make? What adjustments in life should we make to please God? And then listen to the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, God comes to live inside of you through the Holy Spirit to walk you down that path. And so the Holy Spirit's constantly whispering to you, prodding you, speaking to you. We talk about it every Sunday. Hear the voice of God. Say yes to him. The Holy Spirit's working in your life to guide you down the path. If you stray, he'll, he'll convict you. He'll warn you. He'll caution you. Don't go that path. Go this way. Or if you've made a mistake, say you've been rude to your spouse, you need to go apologize. You need to correct that. That's, that's a beautiful thing that God loves us so much. He says, I'm going to put this monitor in you to help you because if, if it's up to you, you're not going to make it. You're not going to be able to do the things I want you to do. So God is working within us to, to make us separate for him. He he gently guides us to make the changes in our life, but it's definitely change that is noticeable. When Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and many of them had lived lifestyles that Paul just mentioned, sexually immoral, idolaters, slanderers, greedy, all kinds of things, he then says this in 1 Corinthians 6.11, and such were some of you, implying you're not that anymore. That's who you used to be, but you're not that anymore. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God is changing us. God is making us different. That's what we used to be like, but now we're different. 
There needs to be some change to show that we're growing in our faith. And it doesn't happen overnight. As I said, it's a walk. It's a journey. It'll go on the rest of your life till the day you die. There'll be, there'll be rough edges. There'll be issues in your life that won't be resolved even when you die. But it's a constant work. That's why we always recognize the fact that I've got my sin issues and you've got yours. And I, I don't have any right to point my finger at you without recognizing that I've got three fingers pointing back at me. So, so you've got some issues. Yes, you do, and I do too. And we're not going to say, well, because you have your issues and I have my issues, let's just enjoy our issues. It's like, no, let's overcome our issues. Let's work on them. So Paul, the same thing is said by, as Paul is said by John in 1 John chapter 1. If we walk in the light, that means walk in truth, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, if we say, you know, I'm better than that now, I'm better than other people, I've arrived, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we need to walk in the light just as he is in the light. And then Paul ends with this. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So he says here another way to walk, to walk in wisdom. Why? Because the days are evil. We need to maximize the time. Because the days are evil, we're going to be wise if we recognize I've got limited amount of time and I need to make the best use of that time. And in order to do that, I've got to have wisdom. He, he quotes, it seems like an old hymn, or maybe it's an old poem. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead. Wake up. Come on, get up. Get out of bed. Wake up. Look what's happening all around you. Are you alert? Are you paying attention? Darkness is creeping in. And let Christ shine on you. Walk with wisdom as you walk through life. What is wisdom? It's more than knowledge. It's more than knowing the right thing. See, it's, it's not just having the right information. It's the proper application of the right information. It's knowing how to use it in life. If you're not careful, we can act unwisely. And see, here's the, the tension we have. We see a world that's getting darker and darker, and yet God says, you need to love the world. You need to love the people in the world. You need to engage with people in the world. How do we do that without alienating the very people God loves? And that's why I want to come back to this issue I I began to approach here, these two sides, one that seems to emphasize regarding to moral issues as we're going to hammer the truth, and the other side that says, no, we're going to just emphasize love. And they seem to be short on the other quality. I confess that many churches for a long, long time have have been hammered on certain parts of truth in the Bible and excluding other parts of truth. For example, we're pretty good at pointing out sexual immorality in other people. We don't do a whole lot to point out covetousness or foolish talking that we're in the very same passage that Paul's talking about. Many of us in the church have a far bigger issue with gossip, with divisiveness, with grumbling, which in Scripture are very heavily judged. And yet we've chosen certain sins like homosexuality or abortion says, now those are the big ones. And they're not the big ones. All of them are big ones. They're all, they're all issues that God's wanting to deal with in our lives. But let's not make some bigger than others. See, I think sometimes we feel like, I see the culture slipping away. It used to be very godly and it's not. And we've got to save the culture. We've got to be the moral police. No, we're not. 
I don't find anywhere in scripture that it says you are to change the, the morality of a pagan culture. Now, we have the benefit of the, of the former Christian culture that's slipping away, but you go to a lot of mission fields, the culture's very, very different. But the Christian community has a distinct culture and morality within it. We would do far better to police the culture within the church than the culture outside the church. See, we've lost our voice when people look at churches, and there's another pastor that had a scandal. There's another denomination that's, you know, that's harboring child molesters. Or those, you know, it doesn't help us to speak to the culture when we're not taking care of business inside the church. So I'm not saying to not address the truth, but I'm saying we've got to be very careful where that's coming from. Because we need to be known as people who, who love people as much as we love the truth. But see, I think that's why this other side has swung over here, because they've watched people get pushed away from churches. They've watched people get attacked by Christians. They've seen those billboards and posters that condemn them. They feel very unloved. And so many believers have come along beside them and says, we're going to embrace you, and we're going to be here for you. But, but I think in so doing, sometimes they've gone too far to say, we're going to remove the, the restrictions. And, and rather than work on the issues in your life, celebrate the issues in your life. And I think there's danger in that as well. Because there's a place where truth and love have to meet. And both be equal. And we see it in the person of Jesus. Because here's what's so good about Jesus Jesus loved people more than anybody else, and Jesus spoke truth clearer than anybody else. And somehow Jesus was able to talk to people about their sins to where when he was done, they didn't walk away saying, man, he doesn't like me. No, they actually felt like, I want to follow this guy. The woman at the well, for example. Here she is, and she's been through multiple divorces. And then Jesus says, by the way, the man you're living with now, you're not even married to. And she goes, oh, dang, he got me. And yet Jesus spoke to her in such a way that she was so excited, she went and told all her friends, you've got you to come see this guy. He's incredible. Jesus met with uh, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a thieving tax collector. And when, when Zacchaeus met with Jesus, he run, I don't know what Jesus said to him, but he runs out of the house saying, hey, I've been stealing from people. I'm going to become a generous guy now. Something about Jesus made him want to change. And we see the prostitutes. Jesus, Jesus protected one from, from being stoned, but then he told her, Now go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Change. Stop living the way you're living. And and we don't know the rest of the story, but you've got to believe that woman walked away saying, nobody's loved me that much to protect me and yet desire better for me. What if if people in your life who aren't living a godly way, and my wife and I have people in our own family. We have people living together who aren't married. We have have people in, in gay relationships. We love them all. But what if we came along beside people and said, you know, when I study the, the scriptures and I see the, the best God has for you, he wants so much more. And I'm here to help you through your struggles. I'm here to talk through your issues. And if you fail, even if you turn away, even if you continue in what you're doing, I'm still going to be here for you and I'm going to love you. I'm not going to hesitate to tell you what I think is the truth. But I'm not going to abandon you. What if we as believers did that? What if we did that within our own community? Because you know, and I just need to let you know, there are people in our own church in those situations. And, and they need to know Jesus. And they need to know Jesus loves them deeply. But they also need to know that Jesus, just as he loves all of us, wants better for all of us. 
And so we surrender our lives to him. I want to close with reading Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Because sometimes people will say, like, well, pastor, you're being too soft on this. Or, or, or you're, you're just going to open the door for people just to sin. And that's not the way scripture presents itself. Because listen to Paul in, in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Our job is not to change people. Our job is to introduce people to the life changer. And that's Jesus Christ. And when he enters alive, he will begin people, he will take people down a path that will inevitably lead, if they're listening to the Spirit, if they're following Scripture, to life change. So I want to end by just asking ourselves four questions that really I think will help determine if we're walking in the right direction. Number one, do you believe first and foremost that God loves you? Do you believe that, that even before you ever turn to him, that he loved you deeply? He dearly, dearly loves you. Do you know that? Do you really believe that? Or do you think he's mad at you? Do you think he's disappointed with you? Do you think he's unhappy with you? You need to know he loves you. Secondly, do you trust that the life he has for you is the best life you could have? Do you really believe that the path God is leading you down, the changes he's wanting to make in your life, are really for your good, for your ultimate happiness? Or do you think that God somehow is a killjoy who wants to make your life miserable? God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be eternally happy. So trust, as part of faith, I trust God that even when you say, leave this behind, you've got something better for me. Do you desire to do what pleases God, however hard that may be? Are you willing to say, God, I'm willing to let that go. I'm willing to to set that aside if that's what it takes to please you. Are you willing to do that? Or is there something in your life that has more control over you than even Jesus. Surrender that to him. And lastly, are you hearing and following the wisdom that the Holy Spirit speaks to you? Are you walking through your days hearing a regular voice affirming you, directing you, correcting you? That's the Holy Spirit. You want to hear that voice. If you don't, you need to hear the voice. God, who lives inside of us as believers, wants to lead us and guide us. So listen, surrender to that voice. Go where he leads. And really the Christian life is all about surrender, saying yes to all that God has for us.